Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Before we start the episode, you know, I've gotten a few inquiries to figure out where we're at with Peter's mom's three star review of our show. Peter, where are we at with that? You know, I think she updated it to four stars. But it changes with every episode, and she hasn't been a huge fan of some of the more recent ones, uh, so who knows where it's landing right now. Well, dear audience, listeners, if you could do us a favor and leave us a review and a rating, it really helps us uh, get some awareness on the platforms where you're listening to this right now. And the next time I see my mom, I'll have to steal her phone and change the rating, at least uh, temporarily. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. We're going to continue our series on wine public relations. And our guests today are from Glodeau Need. Morgan Moore, a director, and Alex Fondren, an associate director at Glodeau Need. Welcome to the show, ladies. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having us. I'll start. I'm Morgan Moore. I was born and raised in Napa, actually. So wine has been in my veins for quite some time now and really did spur my love of all things food, wine, and hospitality. I am the PR director at Glodeau Need communications and have actually been with the agency for almost 10 years now. So a very long time. And I'm Alex Vondren. I'm an associate director at Glitter Need, as you said. I'm a bit newer with the agency than Morgan. 10 years of experience in the wine industry, however, seven of which are in wine PR, marketing and branding. I've also been in online wine retail. I've worked in production and I continue to do freelance wine writing for fun on the side. Perfect. Could you guys give us a little bit of background about Glodo Need and its specialization? Definitely. Glodo Need is the largest independent lifestyle agency based in San Francisco with a focus on hospitality, food and beverage, retail, and real estate. We're also the first West Coast based agency of our size to own and operate offices in Asia, including Singapore and Shanghai which is incredibly helpful for our U.S. clients wanting to make inroads in those important international markets. When it comes to wine, we're really proud to work with some amazing wine producers, some of which include the Plump Jack collection of wineries, which is Plump Jack, Cade Estate, and Odette Estate. We've actually been with them for over 15 years, which is incredibly rare in the wine PR business. We're proud of that. Also Pine Ridge in the Stag Fleet District, Donham in Carneros, Segazio in Sonoma, Brion in Yontville. We also work with some international producers, including Bodega Garzon in Uruguay, Uruguay, and Phantom Creek Estates in the Okanagan Valley of British Columbia, which is a newer region for us as an agency. But if you haven't been or haven't tried the wines from the Okanagan, they're really incredible. So that's just to name a few of our beverage clients. And then as I mentioned, our company does work with a range of entities beyond wine. So impressive hotels and resorts like, you know, the St. Regis San Francisco, Hotel Zeta, Hotel Healdsburg, the Ritz-Carlton Lake Tahoe. You know, we also work with incredible restaurants like Water Bar, China Live, the iconic Boudin brand, learn how to make that sourdough during quarantine. And the list goes on and on, especially into retail and real estate as well. But that's really our bread and butter. So can you give us a sense of what a PR firm does in general? Sure. So our clients typically will hire us as their PR firm to secure earned media. 
which is different from what you've probably heard as big media in exactly the way it sounds. It's earned. The average consumer is pretty savvy and they tend to know the difference between an earned placement and a paid one. So earned media is really all about identifying the audience. And if you're looking at, say, a high-end Cabernet producer, you have to ask first, okay, who's buying that wine? What is their age demographic? Where do they live? What is their income? Then you look at what they consume. Do they have a food and wine magazine subscription? Are they mainly living on Instagram? Are they listening to podcasts like this one? There's really no kind of silver bullet when it comes to PR. And you really need to be sure that the approach to kind of courting that audience is as strategic as possible. And really only then can you begin a really targeted media campaign. So when you say earn media, just for people who don't understand that term, it's even relatively new for me. That means like an article that a journalist writes that isn't an advertisement. That's exactly correct. And are there other things that fall into earned media besides journalist articles? Is it like a broader bucket? Yeah, I mean, it can be broadcast. It can obviously be on social media. You know, anything that essentially hasn't been paid for or done sort of in exchange for product is essentially an earned placement. And I think what Alex said is a really good point that I'd love to emphasize is that the average reader is super savvy. They know the difference when they're looking in a magazine or looking online. They know the difference of their editor that they trust writing a beautiful piece and recommending this wine or this place to visit than a page in a magazine that's a paid advertisement. They know that that company has then paid X amount of dollars for that advertisement. So maybe they won't trust it as much as an earned placement. That makes sense. So in terms of your firm specializing in wine and spirits, how does PR for wine and spirits differ from typical consumer packaged goods that other PR companies would do? So I think wine is really all about the treasure hunt. It's essentially one of the most mass consumed luxury food products that there is out there, while also kind of being among the least understood. It's really one of the only food products that increases in value over time, generally speaking, but it can also be pursued as a hobby or even a skill. And I think as a result, wine has kind of that cult following that other consumer food products just don't have. You know, there isn't a rarefied world of soda critic, for example. Coming soon. <laughs> yeah. There are a lot of flavors of Diet Coke, I got to tell you. Absolutely. <laughs> but that brings up actually an excellent point, which is that soda isn't as ephemeral as wine. And wine is really a vintage-based product. There's always going to be variation. It changes every year, at least in the premium category, that's true. There's always going to be vintage variation there. That's really what makes wine so sexy and collectible and worthy of dialogue and, you know, journalistic pursuit. We'd say that maybe the concept of terroir and the romance of travel that's kind of intrinsically tied to wine. And of course, the pleasure associated with the fact that it's inherently an alcoholic beverage. It's always going to make it a consumable art that can't really be compared to any other consumer product. And really, as wine publicists, we're expected to be sort of versed in the science of wine and what differentiates one bottle from another in a way that really other consumer product agencies don't necessarily need to be. That makes sense. And one of the things I'm thinking about is also the different legal implications and laws around something like alcohol in the U.S., from tight house laws to advertising laws. And how do you navigate those? But they got to be something very unique to the wine spirits PR. 
It is. And honestly, it doesn't come up as often as you'd think, because I think wineries have gotten really savvy, especially the bigger brands that they are working with lawyers on a lot of their programming to make sure that they don't kind of step on any Tide House rules. Where we kind of tend to see that more often is when we're helping with social media, managing those channels, or, you know, when a client gets really excited about a really great new placement for their wines and they want to broadcast that on their website or on social media. And that's kind of where we sort of step in and make sure that they're aware of Tidehouse. A lot of them just are smaller wineries that haven't really thought about it much before. So if it tends to get a little bit more involved with some sort of big promotion they're considering or something that they really need legal expertise, we have wine lawyers on deck who are ready to sort of step in and, and consult on our behalf. Referencing your early comment on earned media, how much of that is working directly with like the large specialty publications that are focused on the wine space? And my follow-up question would be, how has that media space changed over time? You know, obviously print publications don't have as much readership, but they've taken it online and things like that. I'm curious on how that's changed over the years with Wine and Spirits. Definitely. Well, it started out where you would really only see wine coverage in the trades, right? And Critics were really very, very important as kind of the only source where you could find information with regards to wine. And I think critics will always be relevant in some way, kind of thanks to that social currency that wine sort of entails. Because wine is a product that changes every year, consumers are always going to rely on professional critics and trade experts to help them make their purchasing decisions, even if they only see that at sort of the point of sale. But critics do play in helping the everyday consumer as well as collectors really looking to make seller investments. That said, the nature of that influence can change. You know, we've seen, especially recently with the retirement of Robert Parker, his outsized influence left a gaping hole that many are now trying to fill, as I'm sure you know. I mean, the good news is that that will likely never truly be filled, which means that consumers are now going to be exposed to a real diversity of critical opinion. And in that vein, trades are really starting to change their approach. I mean, wine enthusiasts was always sort of second banana to the wine spectator in terms of influence until now these celebrity wines started really taking off, love them or hate them. But the wine enthusiasts started to put them on the cover of every issue, making them far more appealing to younger consumers on the newsstand than say, you know, the spectator, which is still your dad's publication, but it's increasingly needing to find new ways to connect with a younger audience. And kind of in that vein, you know, I think the more specialized print magazines have expanded in terms of what defines them. I mean, you can find wine coverage now in Rob Report and Men's Health and GQ. The Hollywood Reporter will cover wine at this point. So sort of the base of what even defines a specialized print publication has gone so far beyond what we traditionally viewed as, you know, the critical wine publications, if that makes sense. Makes sense. So when you start to work with a wine brand, do they have specific goals that they are trying to achieve with you? Or how do you establish what benefit you're going to bring to the wine brands? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think there's really three things that wineries are hoping to achieve when they hire an agency. The first and the most common is simple. It's just to drive sales. And this really comes down to sort of the genesis of Glodo Need, which started out as an entertainment industry firm. It was all about meat and seats, <laughs> our principles like to say. And when we expanded into hotels, it was heads and beds. And now with wine, we're still trying to come up with a rhyme, but really <laughs> is almost always to help our clients with their sales in some capacity. Even if our client 
is already allocated. And that brings us to brand awareness, which is usually the second thing that we're trying to achieve. As we do also work with wineries that sell literally every single bottle of wine that they make. But the thing is, is those mailing lists do fluctuate with the times. You know, the economy shifts. Certain styles become less fashionable when it comes to wine. Demographics eventually change as we're now starting to see with, I hate to say it, but aging boomers who no longer really see the practicality in collecting these giant sellers that realistically speaking, they may not actually be able to get through. So there needs to be kind of someone in the wings to take that spot. And keeping the brand relevant is just as important in that capacity as driving sales. Finally, and this isn't really terribly different from brand awareness, is brand legacy. And this tends to be a driving force with the more legacy properties and regions as well, who may have a loyal base of customers and maybe perhaps a good amount of awareness too. And that's when we like come in and really help tell their story in a new way or you know find new points of differentiation that had previously been overlooked. It's interesting about the boomers. I think they need to keep buying because that's going to be our inheritance, right? (laughs) (laughs) I think that's what people in the UK think. And, you know, we just need to bring that to America, right? Exactly. Please tell my dad. (laughs) I think the entertainment industry analogy or beginning is really interesting because when I look at wine as an industry, I think it's very similar to entertainment. Right, You have this outsized number of people who just want to be in it because it's fun and sort of cool. And it's sort of like a passion project a lot of times. And that drives down returns and makes it much harder to make money in the field. right? And it drives up competition. So have there been insights from the entertainment industry that you guys have leveraged in wine? Yeah. So the owners of the principals of our company, John Glodo and Jeff Need, John was actually the preeminent publicist during the summer of love. And so he worked with all the, you know, Jefferson Starship and everyone who came through because San Francisco really was the place to be during the summer of love. And if you're a rock star, this is where you were. And our other principal, Jeff Need, was actually a drummer in an 80s rock band called Taxi. So everyone go download a song so he gets some royalties. But they met back then and everything they do really infuses that entertainment aspect. So for example, the Plump Jack group was actually our first wine client ever. And they came to us with a crazy idea. Also two incredibly brilliant men, Gordon Getty and Gavin Newsom, who started the Plump Jack group. And they decided that they wanted to go to an entertainment PR firm because their big idea was to put a screw cap on the most expensive bottle of wine with the screw cap. So when you're launching something like that, you don't want a mom and pop wine shop to launch something like that. You want someone who launches the Rolling Stones in Golden Gate Park, right? So they came to John and Jeff with this big idea and basically Lodini put the Plum Jack group on the map just with that campaign around the screw cap versus cork, which it's one of the most successful campaigns that our agency has ever done. I mean, they had to go knocking on spectators door because they weren't taken seriously because everyone just thought it was Gordon Getty and Gavin Newsom's just pet project and they wanted to make wine and, you know, sell it at Balboa or whatever in the San Francisco. So it was all of the things. It was to drive sales, brand awareness and legitimize brand. And ultimately now they have four wineries that we've grown with them. So we love to entertain. We love a big splashy show. It's definitely what differentiates Glow to Need from other PR agencies. Cool. And just in terms of the goals brands have for you, are there specific sales or brand metrics that you guys have that are for wineries specifically or or wine-related businesses? 
I mean, in terms of if clients ask us to give them metrics. Yeah, clients will ask or they'll give us targets as well that are sort of meant to be our goals. Usually the bigger brands, that's the case. But we know we're really successful when the wineries tell us that their sales are up, phones ringing, follower count on social media is going up, visitations up. And that's when they kind of tend to rip that piece of paper up and just tell us to keep doing what we're doing. PR, and you'll hear this a lot, is not an exact science. And so it's hard to base success on metrics alone. A lot of it is, you know, can you tell that the needle is being moved? Yeah, we recently opened Flower's new tasting room and winery in Healdsburg. And the first couple times we were going up there when they were opening, the first question I would ask is to the general manager saying, how are people finding out about you? What's bringing people to the winery? And the first thing she would always say is, it's the articles that you're getting. It's San Francisco Magazine. It's A1 of the Chronicle. It's, you know, Afar. It's Travel and Leisure. It's your social media influencers you have here. So when our clients are telling that, they see the results and they know that it's driving sales and brand awareness and visitation. So yeah, to Alex's point, they just throw the KPIs out the window. They're like, you're doing your job. You're doing something right. So keep it up. (laughs) So in terms of the relationship between a PR firm and a wine brand, what does that look like? And when or what size of a client should really start considering enlisting in a PR firm? That's a good question about the size. I mean... We're lucky that we have clients that are on a broad spectrum. So we have small, you know, family-owned wineries that want to put their name on the map and want to get notoriety and drive sales and brand awareness and again legitimize them to the public. So I think it's hard to say at what point you should have a PR firm because I mean if you were going to talk to us, we would say everyone. I mean there's no right size. It's not Goldilocks for PR firms, but we typically work on a monthly retainer that incorporates all of the initiatives that we're doing. And they are retainers that range from five to $20,000 a month. So if that's something that isn't in your budget, then maybe you're not the right fit for our agency. But I don't think that it's necessarily a size thing because we really do have some clients that are micro, micro, micro. And then we have clients that are pretty macro and have several brands under one umbrella. Yeah, I think our smallest wine client right now makes like 1,500 cases. But our biggest makes a lot. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, instead of size, because maybe production level isn't the right razor for that, but like, is it national distribution that they should be D to C? Or can someone who's just like a local winery in a local spot, can they still get value out of PR? Absolutely. I think that if you need to sell your wine or if it's at retail shops or if it's on the restaurant and you want folks to know your name and order it off the wine list, if you want folks to walk in the door, I mean, if you want any sort of awareness, I think that hiring a PR firm is a great idea. And I think once you dip your toe in the water and see what a firm can do for you, I think you'll be hooked and you'll really see the value in it. So, I mean, I absolutely believe in the power of PR. We've seen brands just skyrocket from it. So we sort of touched on this in that PR is a little bit squishy and harder to measure at times. But how do you guys think about measuring that return on investment that these wine brands make with you? Yeah. So for return on investment, we do equate our editorial pieces that we secure for our client to the advertising rate. So say we secured a page 
a feature story on a winery in travel and leisure and it was a page long. So that would, if you were going to pay for that advertising, it would be five to $10,000, whatever it may be. So we actually equate all of our placements to ad rates. And if a client at the end of the year, you're receiving $7 million worth of public relations and you're only paying us whatever X amount, then you see your return. But again, to Alex's point, I just think it is nebulous PR, but I think clients either see the value in it or they don't. And more often than not, they obviously see the value and see their sales going up and brand awareness. But we do have hard numbers that we can share and do share. But it just depends on the client, you know, whether or not they see value in those numbers or if it's a feeling. Mm-hmm. I'm curious on if there's a minimum time commitment that you guys want to engage, because I would assume that sometimes these things take time to pan out and come to fruition and they have a long tail. And so I'm wondering, is there like a minimum time frame? Like, it, like when you're engaging with a client, do one a month at a time or is it, it must be a quarter, it must be a year. What's the thinking? We usually work on a monthly retainer, but we sign year contracts. That's typically, that would be our preference you always can give us 30 days notice to get out of it. So it's not as if you're locked in for a year. I mean, it works out for both parties, right? If the client isn't happy, they have 30 days and they can get out. If we're not happy, which it also happens, unfortunately, sometimes, then we can get out of it. So to your point, PR is a long game. We have timelines that we work on. So something called long lead. So if you want to get into, say, Wine Spectator, they work six months in advance. So right now, they're working on the winter and January issues when they're looking at the long form features. But then Wine Spectator Online works within like the week and it's pretty instant. And also regional publications like San Francisco Magazine or LA Magazine, those only work three months in advance. So when you're talking about time commitments, it would be a shame not to give it a full go because you really want to be able to reach those long lead, short lead, and instant time commitments within publications too. Because right now, I mean, I can't even tell you, it seems wild. I'm sweating in my apartment in San Francisco, but I'm talking about January and winter you know, staycations and gift guides and that sort of thing, you know, looking towards the holidays right now. But we do, you know, it's monthly retainers. You have 30 days out. We do sign year contracts just with the hope that we're in it for a year, even longer. But I will tell you that most of our clients in the 10 years I've been there, I mean, half our roster has been with us for 10 years. So I think that it truly is a testament to how close we get to our clients and how the St. Regis here, we have been on their team for over 15 years. So we actually outlast every single employee at that hotel. So we know where all the bones are buried. And same with the Plumjack group. We're the longest standing employees other than Gordon and Gavin and John Conover, the third partner, than anyone else. So I think that a long relationship is what we all hope for. A lot of times, especially in wine, a lot of the winemakers themselves or proprietors will have developed relationships with wine critics or other wine writers like from The Spectator, which often double as wine critics over time. How important is that in garnering different earned media or accolades with wine publications? I think it's extremely helpful. I mean, if a winemaker has established relationships with certain critics, that is 
definitely to be seen as an asset. We're never in competition with our clients to earn great coverage. And oftentimes too, there are some critics that really prefer to just kind of have that close relationship with the winemaker. And if we're able to help facilitate that, great. If the winemaker was able to you know, facilitate that on her own, even better. But yeah, that is not super common that that's the case, but it is when we're entering into a relationship with a really established property for sure. So when we were doing research, because it's an area that both Peter and I don't know a ton about in terms of PR. So we were trying to do some research and figure out like who are the big players. And what we realized is that the PR space, especially for wine and spirits, seems very fragmented. And I'm curious on why is that, but also how does Vodoni differentiate themselves from other PR firms? Yeah, I can understand. So I actually came from a small three-person wine PR firm and was recruited to Vodoni because we were amassing more wine clients, but it is super fragmented. So a lot of PR firms are niche. So the wine PR firm that I started at and that, you know, there's many out there, they only have wine clients, which is pretty limited in your scope of who you can talk to. So that means every time Mary X from this wine PR firm goes to talk to someone from the media, the media know that they only have wine to give them, only wine stories, only wine products. But with Glow to Need, because we're so diverse, we become a resource for journalists. So we can give them where to stay, where to go, where to eat, what's being developed there, what are the trends, here's what's happening in this space, in the business news. You know, So we definitely are multifaceted. And I think it really helps too for our clients because of partnerships. So our wine clients are also super intrigued by the fact that we work with some of the highest end developments in the Bay Area and beyond, some of the most luxurious hotels and resorts, some of the biggest celebrity chefs. That's a big connection for these wineries to have access to. We also have pre-COVID had a big events department of our agency. Pre-COVID, when the Super Bowl came to town, Super Bowl hired us to actually handle all the publicity around all the auxiliary events. When America's Cup came to town, we actually handled all the publicity and the crisis management for America's Cup. When Mark Benioff was looking for an agency to handle all of his charitable events, publicity, you know, we're the agency of record for Benioff Children's Hospital and all of his charitable events. And the list goes on and on. I know Outside Lands, we've worked with them for many years. Same with Comedy Central's Clusterfest. So these are really big events that wineries want to get involved in and want that foot in the door, and we can give that to them. So I kind of look at Glow to Need as, yes, we're a PR firm, but we bring a lot to the table beyond traditional PR. And I think that's what makes us unique from some of those other firms. I was just curious, what are some examples of some of those crossovers, like you mentioned, with the hotels or these events? Like, What is that synergy like in terms of mixing those two? Because I get that you're doing the PR for those individual things, and that's great. That that shows that you have that kind of lifestyle crossover. But I'm curious on how you can bring multiple clients together and make something that's better than the, some of the individual parts. Yeah, absolutely. Good question. So with our hotels, I'll give you one example. The St. Regis San Francisco pre-COVID had a annual polo cup, which they invite their top clientele and actually their residents that live in the St. Regis San Francisco. And our client, we worked with Hamill Family Wines in Sonoma for many years and opened up their winery. 
we actually put them together because they were looking for a wine sponsor of the event and someone to pour wine for all of these beautiful high net worth individuals that would then, you know, convert into sales and wine club memberships and whatnot. So that's a really good example of two clients we brought together in a synergistic way. I also will give the example of the Ritz-Carlton Lake Tahoe. We did a really amazing series and hosted some really high-end wine dinners. They're a very luxurious, very large convention and meeting hotel up in Lake Tahoe on North Star. And, you know, they host everyone from Facebook to Oracle to Tesla. I mean, you name it, they host these amazing groups. And we've had our winemakers go up there and do private dinners for these folks and whatnot. So I think we've really done a great job of bringing them together. I also will say that we work with the Napa Valley Wine Train. And although it's not running right now, and we hope it comes back very soon, we've had great success with winemaker dinners and winemaker spotlights on the train and sell those out every time too. It's a really fun way to engage with the winemaker on an attraction and through Napa Valley. One other thing that, you know, Morgan kind of touched on is actually what initially attracted me to Gloto Need as well. And I came from a boutique wine focused agency as well, which was great experience and amazing for cultivating a lot of these close relationships. The thing about Gloto Need is that we've got amazing clients all over the world and writers especially tend to get back to us a little bit more quickly, knowing that our next email might be an invitation to Uruguay or Macau. And that said, the wine industry gets smaller the longer you work in it. And there are a finite number of wine journalists, some of whom no longer get quite as excited as maybe they used to by the vast amount of wine stories they're being pitched all day. And since really only about a third of Glow Needs clients are wine-focused, that means the rest of our agency is talking to a completely different set of media who just live in that luxury lifestyle space. You know, they're reviewing hotels and restaurants, covering real estate, evaluating consumer products, and we're constantly sharing leads with each other when these different trips are either going to be in town or if they're covering stories that might actually be a great fit for a winery client, even if the writer didn't really set out to do a wine story. And so the result is really exposure to an entirely new crop of potential wine writers who aren't super jaded. Not that most wine writers are, but just thinking that it's a whole set of writers who are actually pretty jazzed about having the opportunity to cover a wine client. And maybe they've never heard of dry farming before. And this is a really exciting thing that I was able to land a story one time in the Atlantic about dry farming with a writer who had never thought to apply her environmental writing to the wine industry. So it's kind of that diversity. And I think a lot of PR, as you just mentioned, is relationships with wine writers and editors and the media outlets. How do you guys go about building your relationships with these writers? Yeah, I mean, it's really helpful to build a relationship with writers when you're already a fan of their work and, you know, what they do and the business that they're in. You know, we are voracious media consumers as publicists in general. And, you know, as wine publicists, we're focused on reading that type of media. But, you know, we also are generalists at heart. So just like, you know, in any relationship, it's all about mutual respect. You know, when I want to get to know a writer, I'll read through their work, see what makes them tick. I'll offer myself as a resource on specific subjects that might be especially relevant to them or what they've been working on recently. You know, a great way to get a writer to trust you is actually 
occasionally to pitch them on an idea that might have nothing to do with any of your clients. And I've started a lot of great media relationships that way. You know, and once they see you as a resource, that relationship becomes a lot less transactional and more of the partnership that it really is supposed to be. When times are normal, pre-COVID, we like to meet up in person as often as we can for a cocktail or dinner, ask what they're working on, keep them apprised of what's new with our client portfolio, but really just be there to sort of listen and see what our network can provide to them in terms of resources as well. Our advice we always give to younger publicists is just to be bold and reach out to new writers that you admire, take them out for a glass and be prepared, come armed with industry angles and story ideas that will actually be of use to them and not just in service to your immediate needs with the agency or with your clients. How important is it for someone that wants to do wine PR, since you mentioned working with burgeoning publicists and things like that, is it that they have a strong wine knowledge or acumen? I would say that comes second. I think that first and foremost, you need to be obsessed with media. You need to read widely and often. And if you have that kind of innate curiosity, I think the wine comes second and can be learned. You should definitely have an interest in wine and in the subject. And the most successful publicists I've seen who don't have any wine experience are immediately asking, you know, when they can sign up for WSET and what resources they should be reading, buying the Bible, getting started in tasting groups, etc. So I think the most important thing that a young publicist should have as a skill is curiosity. They're buying the wine Bible. They're not buying luxury wine marketing. <laughs> luxury wine marketing is part of the job. The wine Bible, that's your own personal growth. Way to plug your book, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> I did receive the wine Bible from my first boss in wine day one. That was her advice to me was to read this. <laughs> but next will be Peter's book. Yes, we'll be showing that. We should make some curriculum, Peter. Exactly. That'll be on every new account coordinator's desk when they walk in the door. Perfect. Whatever that might be. The virtual door. Exactly. So every episode, we do a wrap-up session and we ask a question. We ask, what do you think is a lasting trend or a fizzling fad? And we'd love for you guys to think about that in relation to wine PR. Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, when it comes to talking to our clients about this, I think... Probably a really lasting trend is making sure that you're working with clients who are observing some level of corporate social responsibility. You know, green initiatives, social justice, and philanthropy are not really considered optional programming anymore for wineries or for agencies for that matter. You know, you are who your clients are essentially, big and small. And journalists and consumers want to know that the dollars that they're spending on the wines that they purchase are also in some small but very real way supporting sustainable agriculture, fair labor practices for, say, migrant workers, you know, wildfire relief, or some other really authentic cause that's true to your clients or to the agency. And I think as publicists, it's often up to us to ensure that our clients understand that this is no longer something that can just be lip service anymore. It's really got to be a central tenant for any winery hoping to be relevant, you know, especially with younger demographics. And I understand the question was kind of more about specific to be a PR, but I do think that one of our biggest jobs as publicists is to ensure that our clients are not just on trend, but are plugged into these ideas that are really going to be critical to their long-term success. Yeah. I mean, just doing those things, you have to tell people that you're doing them in order to garner that. So I think there's definitely a PR angle there. That's a very interesting spot. And what about for the fizzling fad? 
I'll take the fizzling fad. So Alex and I were both talking about the fact that when we first got into the wine PR business, that really everyone's strategy was to have their wine clients send them 50 bottles of their wine. And then you just mass shipped it out to every journalist in the US without any sort of strategy. You just took your bottle of wine, maybe put a note in it from the winemaker, and you just sent it to every wine writer in the US, which was asinine. And looking back is just wild because everything we do is so much more strategic now. So I think if any PR firm comes to a winery and asks to do that, please run away. We have been to so many journalists' offices and homes, and they have hundreds and hundreds of bottles of wine that were just blanket shipped to them and they can't even give it away. I mean, they'll fill your arms with 10 bottles of wine before you walk out the door just because they don't have space to store it and don't want it. So I definitely think that a fad is that kind of mass wine unannounced shipping to journalists. I hope you have a bigger strategy than that. And kind of in that vein too, I'd say that also goes alongside just impersonal pitching, just kind of throwing spaghetti at the wall, seeing what sticks in the form of sending a single pitch or story idea to dozens of journalists who have very different interests and beats to cover. I think that kind of mill merge pitch, it's long been fizzling, but we're hoping to see slightly more personalized bespoke pitches to, you know, a fewer kind of smaller, more strategic set of writers going forward. Interesting. Yeah. In terms of sending random bottles out, I definitely know that that is a lot of either wineries or PR company strategy for influencers as well. And there's no direction, no nuggets of anything. It's just a Hail Mary. Hopefully someone posts something about this. It's like throwing spaghetti at the wall. It's just not a good idea. Well, this is very interesting. I want to thank you both for your time. Peter and I have learned a lot about PR for the wine space. Thank you for sharing it with our listeners. Yeah, I hope this was helpful. And, you know, just remember PR is kind of highly strategic, but it's also a bit of an art form. And when you're looking for an agency, you're also looking for an adaptable partner who's going to quickly become fluent in the language that hopefully you get to work together to create. And so if you're thinking about hiring one, look for a firm that you feel comfortable enough to act as an extension of your team. And those are really the best client and agency relationships. All about those relationships. Thanks a lot. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.